Today, I want to talk to you about the power of our words. But before I do that, I want to tell you a little story about secondhand embarrassment. If you haven't heard of secondhand embarrassment, it is that intense embarrassment you feel when someone else is going through something embarrassing. It can happen in any number of contexts. Maybe you're eating at a nice restaurant and you see a complete stranger, not someone you know, complete stranger, proposing to his girlfriend. Everyone in the room is kind of watching out of the corner of their eye because, aw. And then she turns him down. The staff awkwardly back away with the champagne. Everyone pretends they weren't looking. And the crestfallen guy gets up off his knee. And you are just mortified on behalf of everyone involved. Or maybe you're at a family reunion and your cousins have had a little too much to drink and are saying a little more than they should be and you are so embarrassed for them. It can even happen watching a movie. And honestly, this is where I get it the worst. For example, I love British period pieces. Give me some Jane Austen any day. But there is one scene in the Jane Austen movie, Emma, that I just, I have to get up and walk out of the room when we watch it. I cannot do it. In this scene, the main character, Emma, is feeling flattered and self-satisfied, a little proud. She's at a picnic with some of her friends, and she makes a joke about someone who is there, this somewhat silly old family friend. Well, the other woman may be silly, but she gets the joke. And she's embarrassed and upset and falls silent. And the conversation in the entire group becomes awkward and stilted. As they're all leaving the picnic, one of Emma's oldest friends, who of course is the love interest, confronts her about the joke, calling her out on her bad behavior. Y'all, I cannot watch it. I am mortified on Emma's behalf. I can't do it. But perhaps part of what makes it the hardest to watch is that I know I have said things I regret. I know I have gotten carried away in certain moments. I know that I have hurt people with my words before. I know that I've failed to live up to everything I want my words to be. I've missed opportunities to speak into other people's lives when I should have and messed up some of the other chances I had. The book of Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise dispenses knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. And a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. I want to give soft answers and have a wise and gentle tongue. Yet so often, it seems like I am instead stirring up wrath, pouring out folly, and perhaps, perhaps even breaking the spirit in others. I suspect many of you have words you look back on with regret as well. I suspect there were fights 
in which you said exactly what you wanted to and had to live with the consequences. Careless moments in which you weren't clear and damage was done. Or just times when you wish you had spoken, but you didn't. Your words may have broken relationships, ended careers, or hurt the ones you love the most. Your words, the ones you gave voice to and the ones you didn't, may haunt you, perhaps even more than anything else. The author of Proverbs' observations on the power of the tongue are echoed in our reading from James today. James acknowledges that we all make many mistakes, and he urges his readers in incredibly powerful words to keep a tight rein on their tongues. They must have control of the words they speak, or they will cause an enormous amount of damage. You see, our words are, in so many ways, the primary medium of our relationships with each other. It is through our words that we encourage each other, through our words that we share our greatest needs, through our words that we rejoice together, worship together, pray together, and mourn together. Our words are one of the greatest ways we go through life in relationship with one another. And God made us for relationship. The triune God, who is a community of love within himself, made us in his image. He made us to be in loving relationship with each other. He made relationship with each other to be one of the most powerful means of healing, growth, happiness, and genuine enjoyment in our lives. And if that is the case, then it only makes sense that our words would have incredible power for good as the mode of relationship. But the nature of sin is such that the, most power, the more powerful something is for good, the more powerful it is for evil when it is twisted and corrupted by sin. That's why sex, which makes life meets out such terrible destruction when it, comes, when it is sinful. Or why worship, which connects us to our God, our creator, our redeemer, our Lord, can destroy us when it is focused on anything other than God. Why life-sustaining food becomes life-ending gluttony, joy and accomplishment becomes callous pride, and so on and so on. The more powerful something is for good, the more powerfully destructive it becomes when it is corrupted by sin. With that in mind, it should be no surprise to us that our words can be incredibly damaging when they are sinful. As James writes, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Well, I'm relieved he sure pulled his punches there. He really, really says it. But James recognizes that the tongue can be used for good. 
He says, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curse. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or grapevine figs? No more consults water yield fresh. The implication of what James is saying here is, among other things, that a tongue can produce blessings, not just curses. It can pour forth metaphoric fresh water, not just brackish. Our tongues are powerful for evil only because they are powerful for good. But it cannot and should not be both. I read it once, but it's worth saying again. My brothers and sisters, James writes, this ought not to be so. As Christians, James calls upon us to control our words. He calls upon us to use our words for good, to honor our God with our words. As Christians, we know that every part of who we are is redeemed by God. Jesus has saved us from the consequences of our sins, and now, through the Holy Spirit, he is transforming us to be more and more like him. That transformation would be incomplete if it didn't reach our mouths. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is evidenced by our words being characterized by those fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, the work of the Spirit is such that he creates those things in us as we draw closer to God. But that's not to say our role is passive. It is important for us to actively pursue holiness in our words, to actively try to change our speech, to make it more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. As a quick aside here, I want to note that this is not what our popular culture tells us. The Bible tells us that those who do not know God are still under the dominion of evil. And what our popular culture, apart from the church, tells us is that our words should be fearful and fear-inducing about the things outside of our control, impatient for what we perceive to be entitled to as our rights, kind only to those who agree with us, and so on. And most of all, most of all, it does not tell us to be self-controlled. It tells us to say whatever is on our hearts, to tweet whatever feels right, to speak our truth. As Christians, we should be doing the opposite. Our speech should be filled with truth, yes, absolutely, but not the so-called truth of our transient and often sinful opinions and circumstances. Our words should reflect Jesus. They should be the truth of the gospel. And we are called to rein in and take captive any thoughts, let alone audible and written words that do not reflect our Lord. So, here are a few practical tips for how to cultivate the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our words. First, check the motivations for your speech. For example, when you want to offer criticism, are you looking to tear someone down or to help build them up? 
when you want to encourage someone? Is it to get something from them or genuinely to let them know they are doing well? When you want to talk about someone, and we all do this, how's so-and-so doing? Did you hear about such and such? But when you want to do that, are you asking or sharing out of care or using that person as a way to build camaraderie or to have a mutual enemy or what have you? Something I found helpful on this one, by the way, is to ask myself if when I'm asking or listening, I'm thinking to pray for that person. If I'm not thinking to pray for them, that's a good sign my motivations aren't what they should be. So number one, check your motivations. Number two, choose to say loving words, even when you don't feel particularly loving. Love, like faith and hope, as often as not, is more of a choice than a feeling. Choose to say loving words. Third, pray before you say anything that will have a strong impact on someone else. About to talk to your child about something they did that they really shouldn't have done? Pray first. About to talk to your boss about something that's really been bothering you at work? Pray first. About to ask someone out on a date? Pray first. Pray, 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 pray without ceasing. Ask the Holy Spirit for help making your words an instrument of God's will and God's goodness. And finally, be aware of the words you speak to yourself, not just to others. Some of you here have worked really hard at making your words to others godly. But your words to yourself are the sorts of things you would never say to someone else. Maybe you insult yourself over small mistakes. You shame yourself over past sins that you have long since asked God to forgive you for. Or you tell yourself that others just don't like you, even if they've said nothing about it. Whatever your exact words to yourself, they can be sinful too. Remember that you are a child of God. And just like he wouldn't want you tearing someone else down, he doesn't want you tearing yourself down either. So, check your motivations, choose to speak in love, pray unceasingly, and use godly words, not just with others, but with yourself. As James notes at the beginning of our reading, all of us make many mistakes. I have no doubt that you have said and will say things that do not reflect the goodness of our God. But here is an encouraging word for all of us. Our words do not constrain the power of God. He works through our stumbling attempts to speak in ways that honor him. He redeems and forgives our failures to do so. And he powerfully magnifies our words when we do. God does not leave us alone, fighting the power of sin in our words. Jesus has won the victory and he uses all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Amen.